This is the Building Management Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. As people become more comfortable in the home building automation space, they want to be able to take this commercial as well. Regardless of the ups and downs in the stock market, if these manufacturers, these plants, and these entities want to stay open, they need water. Welcome to another episode of the Market Scale Building Management Podcast. I'm your host today, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for tuning in to this edition of the show. I've got a big program lined up for you today. I can't wait to dive into some of this content. And I know that for many people listening to this show, it is winter and it is cold outside, especially if you live in the United States and you live somewhere other than, I don't know, Southern California or somewhere nice in Florida, that it's probably cold where you are. And one of the questions that comes along with that is, how is your roof doing with snow, with ice, with some of the different elements that winter really presents? So we're going to talk to two experts in that field today. Kent Schwickert is the chairman of the board for the National Roofing Contractor Association, and Jeff Broderick is a roof management specialist for Roof Options LLC. They're going to give us an update on what the market has been like this year. We're going to learn some other things just about how the weather really affects roofing and roofs around this time of year, especially in the winter when it gets so cold in a lot of different places and the weather can really be unpredictable and uh, wreak havoc on your roof and that sort of thing. So that is going to be the first feature of the show today. Our own Shelby Skirhawk did a great job conducting those two interviews. Coming up after that, our own Scott Sidway spoke with cybersecurity attorney Sean Tuma from Spencer Fane LLP in North Texas. And they talked about a recent study by a Beijing-based research institute that shows that the United States has the third highest number of cameras that can be accessed by public networks. Things like your cell phone, a web cam or even a smart home device like a doorbell. So he asked the question, how concerned should we be that these devices that we use in our everyday lives could be used for nefarious purposes if accessed by the wrong people? So I think that's a big question that needs to be asked. So Scott Sidway sat down with Sean Tuma from Spencer Fane LLP to ask about how widespread these potential risks are and how serious they could be and what you can do to make sure that you're always as safe as possible when it comes to cybersecurity. So that is going to be our second feature of the show today uh, coming up in just a little bit. But without further ado, let's get to those two excellent conversations that our correspondent Shelby Skirhawk had with two experts in the roofing industry, Kent Schwickert and Jeff Broderick. That's coming up next here on the Market Scale Building Management Podcast. Around these parts in Dallas, where MarketScale is based, we don't have to worry about clearing the roof with snow rakes or ridding the gutters of dangerous icicles. But for many homeowners and building managers across the Northeast and Midwest, winter weather is unpredictable, and that makes roof maintenance a real concern. Winter months are no doubt a challenge for everyone in the industry, says Kent Schwickert of the National Roofing Contractors Association. Well, I think that the seasonality of roofing is what it is. I mean, it depends on where you are. If you're in, if you're a contractor like myself from Minnesota, uh, as an example, you know we we expect that it's going to be fairly lousy from uh, mid-November to to April. Though the winter months are usually pretty slow, it's not for a lack of business, Kent says. Well, I think in general the roofing market is up, and despite new construction, which I think is better than it's been. Uh, it just seems to be increasing. There's just a uh, there's some pent up demand in the re-roofing and roof replacement side of the industry, which is pretty significant. 
people aren't spending the money on their roofs like they should. And what's happening now is I think it's going to become a snowball. So in essence, the economy and the market for roofing is good. A snowball is a particularly appropriate analogy. It's both the cause and effect for the winter roofing industry. Jeff Broderick is a roofing management specialist for Illinois-based Roof Options, LLC. He says winter isn't the time to forget about or put off winter roof repairs. You know, some of the challenges that that occur when you do not do maintenance continuously on your roof is that you allow drains to get clogged up where water's not able to flow very efficiently. And when that becomes the case in the wintertime, it builds up ice dams. And you end up getting multiple layers of ice from snow that would be accumulating, melting, and then refreezing again when it's not able to drain off appropriately and and make its way through the drainage system and get off of the roof. So it is definitely, uh, you know, recommended that you clear snow from your roof. Uh, You know, that's something that, um, you know, our company does. I I know a lot of roofing companies have really put an emphasis on snow removal in the wintertime. And uh, it's extremely wise for a couple of reasons, and one of them being to avoid getting ice damming, making sure that water is efficiently flowing off of the roof. You know, one of the other challenges that is there is a, a weight bearing on your roof, and as snow continues to accumulate, it gets heavier and heavier up there. And if you do not have the structural integrity in your deck system that maybe has been compromised through through corrosion throughout the years, or, you know, you do not have the enough structural integrity to support those weight loads, you know, you've seen pictures before, I'm sure, on the news, and uh, failures happen, and it's, it's obviously uh, catastrophic when that happens. It's easy to underestimate just how much weight and pressure that ice and snow can put on a roof. After all, roofing is made to protect against the weather, not withstand load. What you are not able to control is the amount of snow weight that's going to occur throughout the winter time. You know, especially here in Chicago, we when we get hit, we get hit hard. I mean, we can go from no snow to 13 inches of snow in a 24 to 48 hour period. In fact, we, we, we may be in for that even this evening. They're, they're calling for a, a pretty good snowfall that everybody's everybody's keeping an eye out for right now. But, you know, that's a lot of weight. You figure snow is water and, and, you, and you know the weight of water. So if, if you're adding hundreds and thousands of pounds to a roof that already has a lot of weight on it just from the makeup of that roof, no matter what, a roof system is already heavy. And then you add an addition to that, the large HVAC units and, and, and units that are up there that are putting more and more weight on that roof. Then you couple it with weight of snow that is not controllable. And so the only thing that you can really do to stay in front of that is to make sure that any time you have snow that hits, you have somebody coming out there and clearing that snow off as often as you can to avoid any additional weight loads that could potentially compromise that roof. So it sounds like to prevent these catastrophic roof failures, you should be treating your roof kind of like treating your driveway. You shovel your driveway regularly to prevent this buildup of snow and ice that becomes nearly impossible to clear. So is that then the same principle uh, that you're suggesting for roofing? Absolutely. And, and, and I don't know if you've down in Texas probably haven't shoveled a whole lot of driveways, but <laughs> anybody who has shoveled a lot of driveways, uh, especially up here, if you wait to shovel that, that driveway, it becomes very difficult. So you got to sometimes get out there and, and shovel while it's still snowing just to be able to keep the weight loads 
uh, of the shovel <laughs> to a capacity that you can even lift it. So um, in the same vein, you want to consider that on your roof as well, that, that well, um, you may still be getting more and more snowfall throughout the winter. Getting it off along the way is going to be crucial for keeping that weight down. How often does that need to happen? Does it need to happen for every single snowfall? Or is there kind of a rule of thumb of how many inches for when you need to call somebody out? Yeah, that's a great question. And 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 it's a great question because it's an extremely subjective answer. You know, there's uh, everybody uh, will probably have their own opinion on it. Um, since I happen to be the one that has the privilege of speaking with you today, I can give you my opinion. And uh, my, my opinion is I would say anytime you get at least two inches of snow on your roof, um, that you want to start to consider getting somebody out there to take care of that. Uh, you know, at most most places up here have a general rule of thumb as to what amount of snowfall warrants having your your parking lot plowed. And uh, you could probably apply that same whatever rule that you have in your own mind that you're going to have somebody come out and plow your driveway. Probably want to apply the same thing to the driveway on top of the building known as the roof. Yeah, it occurs to me uh, back in 2011 when Cowboy Stadium hosted the Super Bowl, we had very unexpected ice and the the crews there the emergency crews hadn't factored ice as, as a problem in dealing uh with the stadium and then all of a sudden you've got these these shooting layers of ice and snow like daggers coming off of the roof uh, several were injured i think that was uh, certainly a wake-up call to uh some of the issues that are inherent here but there's actions that you can take to prevent this right that's right. And, and, and don't be afraid to salt your roof. Uh, you know, I, I talked about that here uh, on the roadways, um, that that's one thing that we we prepare for here on roadways is uh, salting the roads before the snow hits, uh, before the ice hits um, in order to make sure that it melts off. So definitely don't be afraid to go get some salt and, and you know, spread it around on your roof, especially around those drain areas, like I said, where, where it's crucial that that water gets through those drains when the time comes. So so, yeah, salting your roof um, can certainly help with the melt off and not letting uh, ice accumulate up there and create those type of dangerous situations like what you just described. So as we start to wrap up, when you're needing make regular maintenance on a roof, it certainly helps to have kind of a, a go to person. I know that a lot of times roofing just happens very infrequently, at least for homeowners, it does. They don't have a regular roofing guy. It's basically just whenever a hailstorm comes through and it's time to get a new roof, you just call insurance and someone shows up. Can you talk about the importance of having a, a regular person that is keeping an eye on your roof maintenance and that is almost a partner in building maintenance with you? Absolutely. Shelby, I could talk days on this. So I deal 100% with commercial roofing. So I, I don't get involved with residential roofing. When it comes to the roof, it's the one asset that most building owners do not think about unless there's water dripping into the building. If it's, if it's not dripping into the building, a roof is out of sight, out of mind. So that leaves building owners reacting to problems, not managing roofs, not proactively handling issues, not knowing what's going on with their roof before leaks occur. And that's problematic in, in many different ways. Number one, uh, the expense of handling things in a reactive environment um, is, is extremely expensive. I, I just cited a, a, a magazine article the other day uh, from Buildings Magazine that, that stated buildings that just manage the roof reactively, like what I described with just going out when it leaks, spend on average 25 cents annually on life cycle repair costs. 
the same building, if it was proactively managed, you have your guy that comes out there at least once a year, is doing an assessment, is doing preventative maintenance on that roof. That same building that was 25 cents a square foot on average annually goes down to 14 cents a square foot, which is, is it's tremendous. I mean, if, if you think of a 20,000 square foot building, you're talking about the difference of, of spending $5,000 a year versus $2,800 a year. So just from a financial standpoint alone, it is absolutely crucial to have somebody that you're partnered with who's continuously maintaining your roof, who's continuously assessing your roof and the condition of your roof and giving you the information in a way that you can make good, educated decisions of knowing what's going on with your roof and what you should do to better maintain it. The last point I'll make with that, too, uh, is is that th- that's just a spend standpoint of, of, of savings by just getting out there once a year and, and doing preventative maintenance and and making sure that you're addressing areas that are problematic. From a life cycle standpoint, reactive roof that does not get at least annual maintenance on average, now this is across the country on a national average basis, is only going to last 13 years before the service life gets to the point that it's past the point of diminishing returns. It no longer makes sense to do repairs on that roof. It's at a point of failure. Proactively managing that roof. What Buildings Magazine stated is that an average roof in the country goes to 21 years by simply performing annual maintenance once a year. So that's eight extra years of life that you get out of your roof before you have to enter in what will become the largest capital expense you'll have to ever incur on that facility. For Market Scale Building Management, I'm Shelby Skirhawk. Huge thanks to Kent Schwickert and Jeff Broderick for joining us on the Market Scale Building Management Podcast today. And thank you to Shelby Skirhawk for conducting those interviews. Really, really enjoyed getting their insight there. A little bit of info on the roofing market as it pertains to uh, winter weather and that sort of thing. Coming up next, our correspondent Scott Sidway sat down with cybersecurity attorney Sean Tuma to talk about a recent study that came out of Beijing that showed that the United States has the third highest number of cameras that can be accessed by public networks. So we're talking about things like your cell phone or webcams, things along those lines. And so the question is how concerned you should be that bad actors can get into those devices and use them for bad rather than good. And so they sat down to talk about how widespread these potential risks are and how serious they can be and what you can do to make sure that you stay protected and you and your family stay safe. So that is coming up next here on the Market Scale Building Management Podcast. There's a story out of the Globe Times that came out about two weeks ago, and it's it's talking about how three countries in the world have the largest amount of cameras on public networks and how that could lead to security risks. America, the United States of America, is in the top three. And we're talking cameras at banks, on the roads, at streetlights, your cell phones, computers, you know, smart equipment like those ring doorbells and those Amazon and Google video chat devices. You've probably seen them in the commercials. Uh, so we wanted to dive into what kind of risks these bring, if any, given that they are everywhere. So we've invited cybersecurity expert Sean Tuma into the program. So Sean, let's just start with this. As a cybersecurity guy yourself, and hopefully without scaring the, the bejesus out of everyone listening, how widespread are these cameras in our everyday lives? Oh, the, the cameras are... Uh, now a a normal part of our life. They're incredibly widespread. 
they are a reality that's not going to go away. And um, it's something we need to just get used to because people love the convenience of the cameras. Um, they love sometimes the security or the, the uh, perceived security that we get from cameras, such as in banks or places like that. And, um, you know, it's just a part of our life. I mean, we expect video with everything now. So um, understanding the risks that come with them, they're not going away. So we need to get used to that. Now, what we're talking about out of this, this story that we're referencing here is cameras that are accessible by a public network. And according to this story, 1.83 million uh, in the U.S., are accessible by a public network. Can you just kind of explain to us what that means? Yeah, generally what what we call these, um, they're often called IP cameras um, because they have an internet protocol, an IP address, which mm -hmm. simply means they're connected to the internet. That's why they're called uh, being a public network type computer because the way they function is they're connected to the internet at some level through a computer and they collect that video signal and transmit it elsewhere over the internet. And, um, you know, and, and that internet access is what makes them so convenient and so valuable, but it also brings with it uh, certain risks as well. You know, one of those security risks that the story from the Global Times references is how and this <laughs> kind of seems on the far end of the spectrum for me, but I'm sure it's entirely possible, but how a terrorist or just a criminal in general could replace surveillance footage, you know, with already looped normal footage, then use that to break in or do something nefarious while people are watching fraudulent video thinking everything's okay. It almost sounds kind of Hollywood, like something out of Ocean's Eleven. Um, actually, I'm pretty sure that's exactly how it works in Ocean's Eleven. But, I mean, are these types of risks real? Should we really be worried about them? And, and what others could there be? Yeah, you know, as you, as you were describing that, I'm having a flashback to some movie somewhere or television show that I saw where they did exactly that. And, um, <clears throat> you know, it's... It's certainly realistic to think that if, um, you know, hackers or criminals will use any tool available to help them ply their, their ill ways. And uh, cyber tools, cameras, things like this. And, and look, this can be as simple as a webcam sitting on somebody's desk, you know. You um, should be looking at it right now. That's right. They, they use those. We know they use them for nefarious activities. And I have no reason to believe that it hasn't been done many times in, in real life. Um, I don't think that's really the greatest threat. I mean, look, these we as I've thought through this, there are kind of three buckets we could group these risks into. One is this snooping or reconnaissance type risk that they're going to access the devices and they're going to use them to snoop on people or or companies or countries or they're going to do reconnaissance um, you know to learn more about their target for a later attack the second group or bucket would be um, that they're going to disrupt these feeds or 
uh, replace them like you just described. So, you know, think of how many of us like to watch the news in the morning to see what the traffic patterns are for that day. Well, how do they gather those traffic patterns? They have cameras up all along the, the major highways that watch the flow of traffic. If they disrupted that on maybe a, a high traffic day at, you know, rush hour traffic, that could cause problems. So that's a risk. And then the other bucket, the third bucket that I would group these in, is using these devices to attack other networks. And and we saw that in the past with something called the Mirai botnet that happened a couple of years ago, which is where hackers wrote a program that took over hundreds of thousands of these cameras, these basically many little tiny computers, and had them all direct their signals at one target. And it, it created a what we call a DDoS type attack, um, which is directing too much traffic to one computer and, and knocking it offline. And they used web-based cameras for that. So that's the three buckets of risks we're kind of looking at right there. So let's, let's, I guess, dive into just each of those a little bit. So that first one you mentioned, the reconnaissance and, and the snooping, you know, that would be, we're talking large scale. I mean, they're likely, I, I guess maybe I shouldn't assume this, but people, you know, the criminals wouldn't be necessarily getting into your phone camera just to watch what you're doing, right? I mean, we're talking about, you know, so, like a terrorist wanting to watch maybe how a government is working and their inner workings and that kind of thing. And and how difficult is it for, you know, a terrorist to get into a government network? Because one other thing the story mentions is, you know, the, the bigger networks, the government cameras and such, those are lesser the problem because the security and the technology behind protecting them is a lot more sophisticated. Well, the answer is all of the above. <laughs> okay. Hackers are incredibly creative and they will always look for new ways to monetize um, their exploits. And over the last couple of years, we have seen uh, several notorious cases where hackers broke into the computers on laptops of individuals and, um, and, and obtained footage of them that they didn't know was being obtained. Uh, there was one example of a uh, beauty pageant uh, uh, winner a few years ago, a young lady who was under the age of 18, who um, had won a beauty pageant and then lost her crown, if you will, because a video surfaced of a nude video of her over the internet. And she claimed, you know, I never took that. And later we learned that it was hackers who had broke into her camera mm. on her laptop, took that footage of her, and then used it to, to shame her. Wow. Um, there, there was a, an epidemic amongst uh, the, the armed forces uh, a year or so ago where hackers would um, use video chat. You know, they would pose as, as a, you know, a female to a male soldier and, and get them to do unseemly things in, in video, uh, have access to their camera, and then use it as extortion against them and threaten to disclose that. So we have seen that kind of stuff. But then to take it to the large uh, public scale, you know, w we've seen them, um, you know, use cameras 
for many reasons. I mean, um, there are websites set up out there where where you can go and see baby monitor cameras, you know, that are open mm-hmm. access, and they just have links to hundreds of baby monitors that parents don't know that's that's being put out there. And that could be used not necessarily just to, you know, do something nefarious to a baby, but maybe just to see in someone's home, you know, maybe someone's trying to burglarize a home. That's right. Who's home? Or or maybe mom and dad get a little frisky in the baby room sometime, you know, and the next thing you know, there's a video of that out there and a threat to pay me $10,000 or we're, we're going to post it. Right. Um, and we see that kind of stuff. Um, you did ask the question about about the different levels of security. One of the problems we've seen in, in the security realm with these cameras for many years is when they were first designed, um, there were there were no security features in them. You know, there was no way to protect them. They were put on the internet, and no one really thought of all these nefarious ways they would be used. So, if they even had any kind of passwords, they had like default passwords that could be looked up and learned. So that's how the bad guys learned how to access them. One of the things we've seen over the last couple of years is a trend towards making them more secure or hardening them. And you do that by having the ability to to set up unique usernames and unique passwords for the devices. And so when we're talking about uh, like Department of Defense type technology, they would have uh, more security by having unique passwords and, and the inability to access them like that. Or they would be behind firewalls that would have other protections and things like that. So what is there? What is it that we can do? Just, you know, it's the regular everyday Joe. I mean, to make sure, like you said, someone isn't peeping into a, a the baby's room, or you know, using our doorbells or our Google devices at home or our phones or anything. Because you know, the government's another you know level, like you just talked about. But is there anything specifically just the the everyday person can do other than just username password to make sure they're not hacked? Well, you know. The first thing we all have to do is understand we're we're in a new world and and every new convenience and benefit and technology that we get and enjoy comes with a new level of risk. And that means it comes with a new level of responsibility for us to understand how they could be used. Um, and to take steps to protect ourselves. And the best way you just mentioned is if you're going to have, uh, these web-based cameras anywhere within your network, whether it's on your laptop or whether it's your ring doorbell or um, the baby monitor or whatever else, make sure you have an ability to set a password on that device and go in, change that default password to something unique and something that someone's not going to be able to easily uh, Guess. Don't use your street address. Don't use one two three four five six. You know those kind of things. <laughs> or even your password. your birth your birthday, right? Because you know, anyone can go look up someone's birthday. That's right. And and think of you know we used to to believe that accounts were safe if uh, we used our mother's maiden name. Well, now we all have Facebook with our mother connected to us. Hackers know that. They can go Google your mother now, you know. And so think about using things that can't be looked up like that and aren't so easy. 
Thank you to our correspondent Scott Sidway and to Sean Tuma of Spencer Fane LLP uh, for that look there at cameras that can be accessed by public networks and the potential dangers that can be caused by them. That is all we have time for on this week's episode of the Building Management Podcast. We appreciate you listening very, very much. We have a lot of content just like this over at marketscale.com. You can go there, click on our industries page. There we have 14 different industries uh, that we cover on a regular basis. So it's not just building management. We have a lot of other information there. So if you're also interested in architecture, engineering, and construction, we have an AEC page where we have more podcasts and written content, just like what you're finding here in building management. We also cover pro AV, sports and entertainment. So lots of different B2B industries and content there on a day-to-day basis uh, for your consumption. So go over there, check all of that out, and you might find some other content that you find interesting, as well as all of our excellent building management content as well. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Market Scale Building Management Podcast. But until then, I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for listening.